So this is one of my favorite ethnic instruments. This is the Middle Eastern Oud, which is one of the oldest ancestors of the guitar, and it is the ancestor of the lute. You're hearing my guest today as he performs one of his over 200 instruments that he owns. We're going to talk about how to learn different instruments, but also how to collect them on a budget. And that's coming up next. Hello and welcome to episode number 32 of the Musician Toolkit. My name is David Lane and it is great to be with you once again. One of the tools that I've talked about before, uh, actually more than once on this podcast already, that every great musician should have is experience with other instruments. And there are two questions you would be justified in asking. One is where can I find these instruments? And two, if I'm on a limited budget, how can I afford them? Well, these are two questions that Eric Parati has asked and answered well enough to have a collection of over 200 instruments, and he's done it without breaking the bank. So Eric is a bit of a special guest, given that I have known him not only for a while, I've known him for 23 years, but I've actually worked right next to him for probably at least the last 15 years at the current location where we both teach, and that's at, uh, in person, that's at Jackson's Music in Winston-Salem. He is my next door neighbor, uh, in studio, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we have our conversation. But Eric is comfortable in many genres. He primarily plays guitar, but he has a number of string instruments that he likes to present once a week with practically no repeat on his Instagram channel. All of this we're going to talk about and more. So let's go ahead and get to our conversation. This is my conversation with Eric Parati. So I'm really pleased today to be talking to Eric. Eric is undoubtedly, I don't think I could ever have a guest on this podcast that I'm closer to. And I mean that literally. Literally. <laughs> about 10 hours a day, I would say we're within about 10 feet of each other. <laughs> Just we share a very thin wall between our studios. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you're you're in your studio right now. You're probably not seeing this, but you unless you're watching one of the promo clips. But on the other side of that wall is where I teach when I teach my in-person lessons. This is actually where I teach my online lessons in my home studio, and I for I first met you, Eric. 23 years ago so it was in it was in the year 2000 i'm pretty sure might have been 1999 it was either 99 or 2000 that's right yeah during my very brief time that i was way when i was way too young i was given some authority to make decisions regarding new teachers uh and or or at least to have an input i don't think i had final say but i was asked to kind of give a strong first impression and so forth and uh and of course you know you came in saying i think you were really looking for space at the time we were in the mall and you were like just put me in the corner of a storage room i don't care <laughs> that's literally what i said yeah. yeah and i think you know i came with a pretty good collection of students and um but really it was because you put the word in for me and i i, I don't know if i've ever told you how much i appreciated that well i don't know how much stood out in the interview but, you know, during the brief time that, that you were at our first location in the mall, three things stood out to me that I, I would say has stood out still. One is that you have, uh, as a teacher, you have you know, a, a definitely a passion. Uh, you have a way of almost getting your students excited to learn, which I, I, I find really, you know, really admirable. The, the second thing uh, that I noticed was that you I couldn't really pin I couldn't really classify you as a type of guitarist like I knew that you had a school of the arts background so of course you had a classical background but I knew that you taught rock guitar to all the guitar students who wanted to learn that and when I would 
hear you play, you were almost always playing jazz, at least early on. You know, that was kind of how you yeah, spent your... I was your very confusing, and I still am. Right. <laughs> yeah. But then the third thing I noticed was, like, I'd never met anybody who really was uh, was serious about the ukulele. Now, I think <laughs> that was during a time when the ukulele might have been starting to take off. You got the, the famous version of Over the Rainbow and... You know, and then people started picking it up, which is probably good for you as as one of the few ukulele teachers. Most of my uke students back then were converts who played guitar, and it was me begging them. And I'd have to tell them where they could find ukulele because, you know, as you recall, working in music stores, they were never there really until maybe a little more than a decade ago. You would see no ukuleles in stores. So it was hard. Right. Um and then I learned through, you know, when you started posting on Instagram a few years ago, once a week, that, uh, well, you you know, it's not just ukulele. You've got tons of instruments. I mean, you've, you've got a ton of guitars, but you also have a bunch of string instruments. And then all of a sudden you start playing like, you know, tin whistle or recorder or, or some other things. So this is what I kind of want to talk about today. So, you know, there you excel at three of the of the tools that I talk about, which is, you know, I think teaching is a tool. I think familiarity with a lot of genres is a tool for a well-rounded musician, but learning other instruments is a tool. And specifically what I want to talk about today is, I mean, we're going to kind of lead into it, but I want to, I want to talk about where do you get these instruments? <laughs> because, okay. Uh, you know, one of the things I think if, I, if I'm talking to listeners about you should get familiar with more instruments, you know, yeah. I, I imagine pushback might be, well, it must be nice if you have money and, you know, a lot of money you can go do that. Well, I feel very confident. I'm, you know, I'm not going to like ask for a salary figure, but I know right. what I make and I know that you're kind of, you're in a similar boat to me. So not that we're not that we're in poverty. So definitely, uh, you have found ways to not let any financial situation impede you from just collecting a huge amount of instruments. So I guess we should go back a little bit. What do you identify as your primary instrument? Is it the guitar? And when did you, know, when did you first start playing? And what kind of style really got you into the guitar? Right. Uh, yeah, well, definitely it was the guitar. And I would say it's still a primary instrument. I think... I'm almost as equal on ukulele, except that, you know, because intervallically the ukulele and the guitar share a lot of the same intervals, uh, that is to say the first four strings of a guitar, the only difference is, aside from the ukulele usually being tuned a fourth above that, like if you put a capo on the fifth fret, that's reentrant tuning. So the fourth string is actually higher in pitch than the third, mm -hmm. but you can still treat it the same way as you would the first four strings of the guitar. So in some ways, I think that I feel as comfortable on both instruments. But yeah, I would have to say the guitar. And I think my passion for that, you know, it goes way back to childhood. I, I literally began playing at eight years old. And I mean, I was banging on it and I was hearing things and my ear was telling me where to go. And somebody showed me a few chords. And one day my brother says, um, he picks up these three guitar do-it-yourself books, like Mel Bay books, 20, 30 page books. And he says, um, why don't you really learn how to play that thing? <laughs> and he, he threw these books at me. And I remember going through all three of them in the summer because I didn't know you could do that. And here was this valuable information that I had. And by the end of that summer, I felt like I probably knew 20 chords, maybe 30 chords. I wasn't sure what instrument I would start on when I was little. I think I gravitated toward drums, but I never had a drum. I think maybe it looked like a great way to take out your frustrations if you really didn't understand musicianship, that you could beat on these things, but that's not really playing the drums. I think what I loved about the guitar was its harmonic and its melodic expressive abilities, because you could bend notes to gliss between the absolute microtones um, of the frets, and that was really interesting to me, that it was very expressive. Uh, but I think that passion fell into jazz. When we moved here from New York, um, I was a lost soul. And suddenly I had nothing to do. If you came from Queens, New York, and it was very active. And we lived in the countryside of Kernersville. Mm -hmm. before, this would have been in like 19, late 70s. And um, so my parents signed me up for guitar lessons. And I, I had this desire to be completely self-taught. I wanted to be self-sufficient. 
and and then it occurred to me why do i want to be musically illiterate (laughs) (laughs) but my first teacher was this amazing guy that i think is still in winston-salem his name is herb stevens and i met him he was in his early 20s and he, he was an open book he was a jazz artist i had no idea what jazz was and that's just his format and being with him for a couple of years i had the the opportunity to tell him about three or four years ago when he was in the store that of all the places I've been, he's still the most influential to me. Nice. You know, when you're young too, and your mentor happens to be that first person. But that's where I started to understand how much I would love jazz. I loved its 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 daringness to be harmonically different and abstract. I, I loved that. Like you could take a few notes and put them together. And I didn't know if I really loved the chords he was playing at first, but I couldn't imagine how he was getting those notes to sound like that. So that, yeah, so I feel more at home in jazz, even though I don't have formal education jazz. My formal education, as you said, definitely is classical guitar, classical music. I never felt quite at home there. I love it, but it was never the passion for me as jazz would be. But, you know, when you're a kid and you're 12 and 13, of course, I was playing Black Sabbath. I was like a metal head at that point, too. So classical sounded cool to me because I think that's a bigger influence for young people who really like harmonic minor scales and things like that, you know, right? So, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. That, that Yeah. Guitar is my main instrument. So when did you start exploring other instruments? Was ukulele the first or did you have some other instruments besides guitar that you picked up before then? Well, definitely bass, but I, I knew enough about bass to then say, okay, so it's the same as the last four strings on a guitar, same exact intervals an octave lower. So I knew I could play that. So I talked my brother into getting one, knowing he would never play it. And so <laughs> I figured that I would have a bass in the house. That that was a no-brainer. But um, I remember one year, my parents didn't know what to get me for my birthday, and they surprised me with a mandolin. They just assumed I would know what to do with it. And again, this is what occurred to me at a really early age. If you knew how the instrument was tuned, you could theoretically walk your way across it uh, but i think there's a spell that comes over most guitarists anyways we really as you mentioned from my instagram posts we think we can play every instrument we just it's this weird mentality and um i don't know why i still believe that because i've listened to some of those instagram videos and i should never pick up a violin but i can promise you i'll probably do it again <laughs> nice um I'm just going to take the bass and the guitar and the ukulele to present what I would think is an obvious challenge. And I'm not going to, I shouldn't say that I think, I know I picked up all three of those instruments and that is, yes, they're all string instruments. They all have vastly different hand stretches and, you know, so getting used to that now, I imagine maybe that's not quite the same when you can see the frets. It's maybe not quite the same as trying to go from cello to the violin or something like that. But how do you, do you find that adjustment difficult or do you just have to practice like I, like I, the the stereotype is it's harder to go from big to small than small to big but i don't know if you think that's true or not i think it's true i think it's also true the other way but not quite as much because when i have been playing guitar for a few hours and pick up a ukulele my judgment is too big and you know it, it's weird i could I could get to the seventh fret where my brain was thinking it was only the third, you know? Yeah. But I think the adjustment's quick. If I, I highly recommend rotating. Even as a guitarist, I love to, I have over a hundred guitars and I love to play on the ones that mean the most because maybe they're the home base for me, but I more so love rotating them around and not getting too used to any one of them so that you don't fall into a pit that you can't get out of. You need to expand your comfort zone by getting uncomfortable a little bit, you know? Right. Yeah. So do you have a count of how many instruments you own? No, (laughs) (laughs) but let's say it's easily over 200, easily. But that, that's including everything. Some of the stupid little uh, penny whistles. And um, I have a few nice recorders, by the way. Right. But uh, I, I told myself that I don't need to buy another recorder, but I probably will. <laughs> okay, so let's let's just maybe, we won't go through all 200, but, you know, maybe just kind of pick, <laughs> pick a half dozen maybe of like some interesting ways you've obtained instruments. Now, I think if I remember correctly, I mean, my memory, I'm, this is probably going back to a 20-year conversation but i seem to remember that you would sometimes go into like a flea market or something yeah Yeah. so have you found many good instruments that way 
I would say one of the first instruments that ever started my craze in in a particular direction was definitely at a flea market. But, you know, I'm also a Beatles fanatic, although I can't think when the last time was I listened to a Beatles album. I've, I've played those for 30 or 40 years. There's more music to hear now. But in my formative years, it was very much Beatley. And, you know, the song back in the USSR, what is he saying? So one day I figure out, he says, something about the instrument, the balalaika. Yeah. And I find out what that is. And I think to myself, wow, you know, that's a Russian instrument. I will never find one of those, but I actually have two of them. And um, about 30 plus years ago, I came across one at a flea market in Yadkinville. And I think the guy wanted 30 bucks for it. And he said, it's Chinese. And I said, no, that, that's a Russian balalaika. And not only that, it even had a little pamphlet with it, which was a big plus, mm-hmm. tiny little pamphlet all in Russian. But one thing is beautiful, the universal language of music, and in particular, the common written music notation, because what I saw was appeared to be E, up a fourth A, and the same A again. I thought, well, that must be how you tune it. (laughs) And so I I drew this conclusion. If you know how an instrument is tuned, again, I said that earlier, I believe, you could start making your way across the fingerboard. You, you just got to keep using your theory. Nothing really changes except you got to know where your starting points are. So I started playing that thing. And then I let that go for many years. And then I realized, what if you don't want to tune it that way? It really doesn't matter. You know, you can tune it however you want. But I do normally use that tuning, the EAA tuning, like, a you know, up a fourth. And, and, and that works out pretty good if you want to sound Russian. But I remember one time playing it in a restaurant. And there happened to be a Russian guy there, and uh, he, he took great interest in the fact that I was playing this balalaika. And um, I said, uh, yeah, I was playing like a medieval-style music because it was a medieval restaurant. And it sounded pretty neat. I was actually playing an old, uh, it might have been Sumerisa Kumanin or something like that, you know. And and he was smiling, and I said, I, I don't really know any Russian music, though. And he goes, no, you don't. <laughs> I mean, right away that I was playing this as a non-Russian cultural musician, but he appreciated it at the same time, you know? Right. So uh, that's kind of where that craze started, and it definitely was found at a flea market. Right. Balalaika is probably, its most endearing mark is probably its use in the film score for Dr. Zhivago. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> But there and, and there is a great group. Uh, my wife Jennifer heard them come to the, her area in Florida when she lived there. Uh, it was the Bal- It was a balalaika orchestra. They had like a bass balalaika and so forth. And they, she said, they were phenomenal. Yeah, the basses are nearly as big as uh, you know an upright concert bass. Uh, they may be a little shorter. I don't. I've never seen one in person. Um, but there's also a piccolo, which is a tiny little uh, balalaika. The two that I have are both the common size. Uh, which I don't know what voicing that is. Um, it might be a soprano voicing. It's a high voicing. I got to tell you, that instrument, they never intonate that well. And I don't know if you remember uh, Paulina Rabdel, who used to teach at Jackson's. Mm-hmm. Yes. And she told me that was common, that the intonations are usually, the intonation is usually a little off with those. But you, she also suggested that most players only chant on the bottom, the little string, and the other two are often played as a drone. I don't know how common that really, really is. But that instrument has become so useful to me. I've used it on a lot of my Christmas albums. It's almost a go-to. It has this great sound that you know it's not a mandolin. You just know it. And it has this tiny little central hole. And it, it really projects very well, though. That That's just been a very... I think because it doesn't feel that unlike a Western instrument, you know? Yeah. Now, there are some instruments, I, I assume that you probably have a a dulcimer or two in your collection is that true i had to i got rid of one recently but yeah i i have a lap dulcimer that my dad made for me many many years ago and i decided of the two that i had that one um meant more to me and it's very functional i've used that to record with as well uh the dulcimer is really neat too because it's diatonically fretted yeah. and depending upon how you have it tuned it'll accommodate different modal tunings based on the starting point but as long as you stay on the chanter string which would normally be the one closest to you, sometimes played as a chorus and double. Uh, the others, you normally just play open. If you're really good, you'll you'll start fretting all the strings to create differences in voicings for chords. But you can't go wrong if you just play that, that one chanter string. Everything will work. Yeah, that was the point that, that I was going to I was gonna draw, is that most of your string instruments are chromatic. But, yeah. you know, the dulcimer and the harp are the two that come to mind 
that are modal instruments and they they only have seven letters and depending on how you tune it and uh and it seems like if i remember correctly like a lot of dulcimers are they're happiest in the key of d but looks like like the the standard tuning or something like that but you know as you say you can change the tuning on these things to get what you want i usually that's what i do especially with the dulcimer is when i'm recording with that i just decide upon what um, open string pitches I think sound best with what I'm recording or it might even start from the dulcimer I haven't used it a whole lot but I, but I have used that uh, you know every here and there and and again that one it's got this real nasally drony sound so it's easy to pick out on a recording and some people have compared the sound of the lap dulcimer to a bagpipe because of the drone pipes on the bagpipe okay so I know one other way that you have obtained instruments for sure uh, so and and that is that you've had the fortune of having a lot of students over the years who I guess they, they just know you like instruments and they've given you some as gifts. So what's one or two of the most interesting instruments that you've gotten by yeah. receiving it as a gift? Well, actually, um, the guy who teaches piano next to me, oh, wait, that's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, his wife gave me some really cool ones. Um, yeah. uh, I love that, uh, that uh, Dombra from Kazakhstan. Mm -hmm. which is pretty neat. It's a lot like an instrument I already had called the Dutar. I believe it's a Dutar. Uh, the Dutar is uh, Turkish. But it's a smaller version of a very, very similar instrument with old world frets that are tied completely around the neck of the instrument. But they play a lot like a guitar, you know, as far as they're just in half steps. Um, but to, to that point, aside from things like that, you know, of those two instruments, I would say uh, it's any variety of things. One of them was one of my balalaikas that one of my students was going to relocate to Texas. His family was moving and his mom handed me this thing. And it's it's not very playable, but I intend to one day put that in playing condition. But it was really beautiful because some of the balalaikas have a black face and they have painting on them of like you know russian scenery and this was one of those so i keep it on display in in my home studio uh, that that was um, a really really neat piece uh, but that's how you can maintain a lot of instruments I, I tell my students this all the time then they say how do you get so many guitars well first of all just always offer 20 bucks mm -hmm. <laughs> because you, you're mostly going to get laughed at when people hear that but sometimes they'll go yeah, that's fine. Or they might say, how about 25? And if it means enough to you, you'll probably spring for the 25. But if people know you collect, they hand them to you constantly. It may take a while, but uh, a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, student of mine that is actually a ukulele student, she's got a, a small but exquisite little collection. She has a 1920 Martin. Her dad bought these for her, and he goes to estate sales. And she came in with a little holy grail for me it was a mid-1950s made by harmony roy smeck concert uke in exquisite condition and she said i don't really collect them and i know you've mentioned this guy's name and she just handed it to me and i i couldn't believe that and a few other ukuleles that um people have given me over the years honestly they don't know what to do with them i remember when we had another guitar teacher here and he said i'm cleaning out my closets at home if i find anything you might want what, what would you want me to look for and i said how about a ukulele and wouldn't you know, he came in the next day with one. A, a neat little old uke, again, probably a 60, 70-year-old ukulele that needed some repair, but um, it's still on the shelf waiting to be repaired. <laughs> nice. But, you know, actually, um, the flea markets uh, also, I call it treasure hunting when I, when I go to thrift stores. But one of the strangest things I found, there's a Goodwill, and I shouldn't be saying this, people are going to find my, my wishing hole <laughs> on... On, on Peter's Creek, and uh, I was digging through the bins there last year, and I come across it was a gig bag. Now I go, I wonder what I could be in here, and I unzip it. This was a um, Persian Comanche. <laughs> I, I was never thought I'd see this. It's a gourd body, and it's a spike fiddle played straight up on the knee with a fiddle that goes sometimes goes in between the strings. And it was all there. And I take it up front where everything is sold by weight. And I think it was less than $5. <laughs> so, you know, even though I can't do much with it, just owning it is the greatest feeling, you know. 
Right. That and actually in the, in the same place a few years back, there's a guy there that sees me all the time, and he comes walking over to me with a favilla ukulele that's an oval-shaped uke made in Italy, and they went out of business I think in the 1940s. And he goes, "Look what I found." Now he he was uh, down on his luck, and he said, "If I go buy it, would you give me 20 bucks for it?" And I said, "Why don't I just give you 20 right now, and I'll go buy it?" So it, it wound up costing me about another two dollars <laughs> above the 20, you know. So right. Uh, yeah, so that that was a fun find right there. But you know, that's that's how I obtain these. But really, every one of them comes with the intention to be played, right? To whatever extent it might be. Now uh, we have a um, a cousin uh, that um, is married to a guy from Pakistan, and when they went to their honeymoon in Pakistan, he came back with. I don't know if it's truly a sarangi. It's the it's the Pakistani version of a sarangi that he said was completely authentic, which again is an upward held fiddle that you play this way with, you know, with a bow and play it on your knee. And uh, that's, that's a neat thing. So that was just given to me, you know, they know I loved instruments. And so there was that. Nice. Uh, you know, you mentioned thrift stores and I've never, I haven't said this to too many people, but you know, for those who have seen any of my videos, I have a piano off to my left here that, that I use for this studio. And, I got that at a Salvation Army before that particular location closed. I went there looking for another piano. People, uh, uh, my in-laws said, we saw, we saw a piano at the Salvation Army. You got to go check it out. And it was, and they wanted me to look at it because it was really beautiful. It was mahogany. It was polished. It was so nice. But all you had to do is play two notes and just know this thing is awful. You look inside, the pens are rusty and it was like it would take so many tunings i'm like this this isn't worth it i think it was 500 dollars something like that is what they wanted and then wow. right next to it they had this piano for a hundred dollars and you know the wood the wood is chipped right here it, 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 it there's there's another side to it it just looks doesn't look very good it's big and bulky but, yeah. Right. But it was almost in tune. All the keys played, and I, and I, I said one or two tunings, and this thing is good to go. It was a hundred ten dollars, bench included, and wow. And so, you know, for those who don't know, that's a very good price for any piano <laughs> at all. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And um, that, was, that is something. And I've learned that about thrift stores is they don't have a clue. They probably looked at the other one and thought well, this one's got to be worth more because it's prettier, and they don't know anything about the functionality of the instrument, you know? Yeah, and that was nearly 20 years ago. I've had I've had this for a very long time. It's moved, it's been in, I think, three different rooms in this house, and, you know, it it holds its tune really well. I don't feel like I have to tune it, you know, more than any other piano I have, so... Uh, but if you had really... the other one, that's the thing, you know, if I buy instruments that I know they need repair, almost all of the time I know I can do the repair, but it's a guitar, it's a banjo, it's a ukulele. They're far easier to evaluate and to repair than, than that piano would have been. I don't know what you would have had to replace on that, you know. Probably the all the strings inside, I would think, would need to be taken out and put new ones in. What would that cost? Right. Yeah. So you've gone over learning strategies for string instruments. Figure out how it's tuned, figure out how yeah. the strings relate to each other, learn the chords. But... You are you obviously know some non-stringed instruments. We mentioned recorder, like ten whistle. What are some of the non-string instruments, and wh how did you, in your mind, go about learning to play it? You know, that's really good because, again, I'm going way back into the '90s when I started thinking about branching out and at least having a, a fairly good comprehension of what it's like to get away from the guitar. Because really, you know, music theory applies to every instrument. Well, at least every Western instrument. So I wanted to experience that, as you say about looking at an alternate instrument. Uh, with Tin Whistle, the first thing I did was tell myself, learn to read on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that I could comprehend, you know, the movement of the notes, the contour of the notes, how far my fingers had to go to make intervals. Now, that also would require technique beyond my fingering to play whistle or recorder because you have to blow harder to get to another octave. Uh, so, but that was my mentality. I'm still close to 30 years ago when I would do that. And I remember getting pretty good at reading for those instruments. Uh, then I would realize, you know, I could improv on them as well. And that that's kind of where I, I take those now as opposed to always reading on them. 
but weird thing happened. I got a new ukulele student today. He's seven years old. I would never teach a ukulele student how to read notation. It's highly impractical because the first and fourth string are tuned to almost the same pitch. So it's a, it's a real game of guessing to determine where you're going to play certain notes, which string. So that's confusing. But his first teacher had only taught him how to do that. So he was reading these little melodies. That was all well and fine. I told him not to stop doing that. But you got to learn the technique of your instrument as well. And the ukulele can play melodies, but it's really a perception that tells us that it's really a chordal instrument. So I think that's important too if I'm playing a stringed instrument is that I've already learned the basic technique from a guitar on how to use my left hand so that it doesn't interfere with adjacent strings. But if you're just playing melody, that's not going to matter. You know, the technique can be very sloppy if you're just playing melody and still get a pretty good tone from string to string. But I think that's why I think approaching other stringed instruments is easy. And that made too much sense to me when I was younger. So I wanted to try things that were not with strings. So the recorders, I think when I was at the School of the Arts, I really didn't love 20th century classical guitar music. And I wasn't quite in love with Spanish guitar. I really liked Renaissance music. And I was always told, well, you know, you're supposed to graduate away from that. I was like, well, then why do people make careers out of it? You know, <laughs> uh, why was there a Julian Bream who was uh, a great classical guitarist, but also a great lutenist? Um, so I wanted to play recorder because I, I really loved the sound of it. It's oddly nasal. You know, the recorder is a funky tone. It, it bothers many people's ears, but I wanted to read for that. So I, I used to be able to read for recorder really well. I mean, beyond just basic fingering, I was learning how to read in different keys. And I, I remember recording a lot of Renaissance music 20 some odd years ago that I felt that confident that I could do that. I don't read for that instrument so much anymore, but I think that's just another way to expand your musical brain is to not settle in just one place. You know, you, it, it's again, it's like trying different recipes and, and opening up your musical palette beyond just the instrument, but realizing that the music theory applies to all of them. Right. Right. Yeah. So I know that we could go on, uh, you know, just, I, I mean, you know, there, there's still what, 194 instruments to go. <laughs> so, so, yeah. So, maybe just some takeaways uh you know just before we go on to the next topic and that is um so have have a budget when you're looking for instruments try places like flea markets in yard sales and i guess there's estate sales yeah i don't i mean no i don't know how people find out about those anymore but i guess you could find out about them some places uh you know used to be in the paper when papers were more prevalent but but have just a, a budget in mind for it and you know go ahead and you know, just offer. And also, you know, as you make friends and, and you, and you have students and you meet and you have family, let it be known that you like instruments and you never know who might give you some gifts. So I would say that sounds like the strategy for getting the instruments. And then for learning the instruments, it's just being patient with, uh, you know, just figuring out how the instrument works and learning and probably, I mean, it sounds like, you know, don't try to learn the repertoire right away. Try to learn how the instrument works and figure out just some technique on it, and then you can make the music. Does that sound kind of accurate? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I will admit some of the things that, that I have, I've recorded with. Like An instrument that I really love but I hardly ever touch anymore is a Chinese arhu. And I found that at um, an antique festival, and it was on a rainy day. And I wander into this booth, and it was these two people from China, and they had the most exquisite antiques. Their stuff was like five and six hundred years old, and they they couldn't. They were a bit appalled at what they were seeing that was like fifty year old stuff that they did not think was antique. So I see this arhu hanging, and I go, "Oh, that's an arhu." Now, uh, not only that, I, I told them that I was going to be going to China soon to become a father. <laughs> right. And so immediately they they take to me. I think they dropped the price of that thing from $150 to 35 bucks just because I took interest in that. And she told me it was from the 19th century. That again is a spike fiddle. The Arhu is really neat. It's a two string spike fiddle that the bow is supposed to be entwined between the two strings. And it's permanently there until you take the strings off. I did wind up recording with that. And I would love for you to hear it uh, because I think it sounds like soundtrack music. <laughs> but anyway, 
it took forever to put down a line and punch in because there's there's no way to really determine where your pitches are except by ear you mm. don't depress the string you just touch it and it's about an inch away from the neck itself the string is a- above that and you know you move the bow this way it's really unusual uh, parallel to the floor and you hold the instrument straight up that took a lot of takes for me to get one line and then another and then another and you know you edit it together and nobody can tell you did that at least you know you hope that (laughs) so uh, but uh, i don't know if that was answering your question yet though um no no so just just having a strategy you know of like learning kind of figuring out each instrument but also getting them uh so i'm going to direct listeners to your instagram it it is one word eric parati the handle and and that is two r's two t's and I was just checking. You have 352 posts. I don't know if those are all videos or they're, I know they're at least mostly videos. Have you ever repeated an instrument in those posts? Uh, rarely, and I'm about to do that this weekend because it has been more than three years. And believe it or not, um, it's going to be a sitar post. But uh, it's the last time I did a sitar post again was more than three years ago and um, you know i try to make them kind of funny i'm sitting there with a little uh tabla drum in front of me that i'm not playing and um, this and that and uh wearing something that i thought looked a little indian you know not not trying to be out of out of taste though And I played a raga, which that's an interesting thing too. If you, I think with that ballet, like I mentioned earlier, that started my craze of wanting to find cultural instruments. Mm-hmm. And when I found this sitar, which is really it's a smaller body sitar, it was like finding a gift from God. <laughs> so I couldn't believe this was actually at a store that used to be on Granola Road called the World Mission Shop, and it was made in India. It was 150 bucks. I couldn't mm-hmm. believe it. But I, when I when I posted it last time, I I played a raga. A raga. We mistakenly call it a scale, mm-hmm. but it's really the Indian culture would say, don't, don't, don't call it a scale, even though they actually use the same modes we do. You know, they may not use the term, for example, Ionian, but they do use a major scale in their work as well as we do. But they say call it a tone row because mm-hmm. the ascension and the descension are different. And sometimes it's important to uh, slur a note into the next during one passage as opposed to another so i played um, a raga called maro bihak uh, a few years ago and um i just improved with it a little bit because most Indi- indian music is really just improvisation but this post i've already recorded it, it you know they're short I, I, this one might be a minute long though um i actually decided to get a, a, a recorded drum beat let that go and um strum the uh sitar (laughs) which you don't do you don't strum a sitar but i'm strumming it to produce the overtone of harmony drones and which that happens anyway with sitar music Uh, and and that um that's what i what i did with that as far as posting yeah a few of the instruments that'll be only the second post in four years of the sitar but you know certain people may never have seen it because they don't search the page there are a couple of guitars that i've uh, done more than once i try not to because the whole idea started with featuring all of these instruments. And um, so to have rarely repeated any, it's a good example of, because I post every Saturday, usually around 1.30 in the morning, between 1.30 and 2. I found that that's a really cool thing, you know, create a brand for the way you do everything and let people expect it's going to be there. So I know there's a number of people that on Saturday morning will go, I bet he posted something, you know. Uh, so it's almost like having a routine where um, if you tune in to see Seinfeld every Thursday night, you know it went on at nine o'clock, right? So, right. so that was uh, that's many years ago. Uh, but that that's um that's a good example of how many instruments I, I try to post is not repeating them that often. But yes, there've right. been a few. And you ask another question as far as are they all videos? Uh, what was it about three fifty two? Is that? Uh, how I many think videos? it says you have three hundred fifty two posts, and I, that doesn't know that doesn't say if you archived any of them or deleted any. Yeah. But yeah, that's what you have right now. So now this yeah, is recording this right. a little early, so it'll probably be like three fifty four by the time this comes out. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, at least three fifty four. Um, 
I think uh, maybe of the 352, 350 are videos. <laughs> right. uh, I, I know I put a couple of photos on there of an instrument here. Maybe three of them are, are photos as opposed to videos. Uh, I, I, I like doing the videos. It's a really fun thing to do. And people comment sometimes, hey, I had one of those guitars. and Or, you know, just uh, they like what I'm playing. It's, it, you know, it's just fun. Yeah. Uh, and I like it. There's a little... F- framing device that you do with each video I like and you, you start with a close-up yeah. of the instrument pull back play it and then you you show the close-up again as you stop the video so that's always it's always kind of fun yeah. and, and you know it's something you kind of come to expect um, if people find those videos uh, and you know they're, they're like you know you seem like a very interesting person they want to take lessons with you I, I know if you live in Winston-Salem you know certainly uh, they they should look you up. You currently currently you're teaching at Jackson's Music and right. on Stratford Road. And uh, but you still take online students, right? I, um, very rarely, but I did pick up another one about a month and a half ago. Yeah. Okay. So anywhere in the world, if you uh, you know, if if you'd like to if you have to check with Eric, yeah, just send him a direct message. <laughs> That almost happened, though. I, I've got to tell you this. So there was a kid I taught years ago. Um, he was about 14, 15, and, and nobody wanted to take this kid. They all called him the wild boy. Mm-hmm. And I got along with him just fine. He was wild. He would come down in this location on a skateboard, and he was kind of noisy and, um, you know, real street urchin type of thing. Yeah, but But we got along really good, and he took from me for about two years. And then we parted, and I would see him every now and then. When I came back here after quarantine, he looked me up. Now, I want to tell you, I met him in the 80s. He looked me up, wanted to take lessons again. Now he was 50. Mm. <laughs> and that's the coolest thing. Um, but he, he had been living in China. Everybody said he would never mount anything. He actually, I think, has a PhD. But he teaches English as a second language, and he's taught all over the world. And he loves to be in other countries, experience the culture, but he loves China. And uh, in particular, he likes, likes to be in Taiwan. And uh, so he told me straight up, he said, I'm so glad we can do this. He said, um, I'm going to be going back to China probably in about five months. So he, we planned to do this, you know, uh, through Zoom because it's a 12-hour difference. It, it could have been like, how about eight in the morning for you, eight at night for me, that we could do that. But we just never got it together. But that, that would have been really cool. You know, I think yeah. that I do have a few people that are further away from here. Um, I was teaching a kid in Charlotte, you know, so that's not too far, but, but it was cool. It was really, cause I had taught his grandfather for 30 years. <laughs> so this was I, when I far, first started teaching his grandfather, he, his, his daughter was this kid's age. <laughs> so he's about 14, you know, so pretty, pretty neat. All right. Uh, so this is going to come out toward the end of July. And okay. when we get to August, you're going to be doing once again something called Jackson's Jams. Why don't you tell right. us a little bit about it, what it is, yeah. and if anyone wants to get on board, how how they can do that? Sure. Yeah. So Jackson's Jams, I think we probably started around 15 years ago. I was not even on the board when that started, but I heard about it. And another teacher that was really supposed to be doing Jackson's Jams asked me if I would be interested. And I said, I'll volunteer my time. I'd love to see what it's about. Well, we didn't have a game plan yet. It was just a bunch of kids sitting around in a circle and kind of like a workshop where you'd try to get them to play scales to a metronome. But it seemed really boring. So what we decided to do was, how about they learn to write music? So the format is, it's a two-week day camp. We go from 9 a.m. to 1.30. And uh, week one, or let's say day one, if I got enough kids, I'll break them up into about two or three different bands and see who works well together. And we want to, on day one, immediately start writing a song, each band. Last year, we only had one band. So we start writing something. And I want to draw the ideas from the kids. So the first thing I was like, does anybody have any ideas? Um, and then we, we sort of nurture that. We, we work with it. I want everybody to give it input. Even if the input is really small, it'll be meaningful in the end. It'll be a very important part. So week one is that, is acclamation. Uh, writing the songs, uh, taking direction, because I always let everybody know that I'm the director. Mm-hmm. Everybody's opinion matters. Mine's the only one that counts, but usually their opinions are the ones that are always used because I want them to feel that important because they are. Uh, we have to name the bands. And so 
they have to do that. By the end of week one, I want the songs to be in fairly a completed stage because we're going to record them. So we do the recordings on Friday and maybe the following Monday. Uh, so that's got to get done. Week two, they will take photographs of their bands. They have to name their songs. They have to name their bands. They have to decide who's going to be the person that speaks on stage because at the end of week two, they do a free show upstairs in the showroom. Usually it's about 30 minutes. And so they've had to work out this show. So the second week is a lot of drilling for the show. Recording's over. Photos are done. We take a good three days, four days, and really drill the show. And on the final Friday, we move all our equipment upstairs for the last hour of rehearsal so they can acclimate to the stage. Uh, and so that night, around 6 o'clock, they have to do their advertising, tell all your friends. We have a big show. And last year, we had four kids, and they packed the place. We didn't have enough chairs. It was great. When it's all over, I shove them into a limousine, and we go eat pizza and tool around town like rock stars. And by the end of the limo ride, which is usually about, we were out for about three hours just having fun, everything starts to get quiet, and the kids start to look a little sad, and they ask me if we're going to do it again next year. <laughs> so, nice. so, yeah, if anybody wants to inquire, I um, I could use probably another drummer. Um you could probably just contact Jackson's music and ask about Jackson's jams and find out pricing. I, we're going to start on July the 31st and it runs two weeks. Okay. So this is for those local in, uh, in Winston-Salem, but if you're listening to this and you're not local, but that sounds like a good time. There's no better time than to take a two week vacation to Winston-Salem, uh, especially if you're a drummer to join Jackson's Jam. So, uh, yeah, we'll put, go ahead and push that. Uh, do you have any other projects or anything? I mean, we talked about where people can follow you on Instagram, and that's, as far as I know, like, your only little, your, your only kind of social media hangout, unless... Yep. unless I'm, <laughs> yeah, unless I guess I'm on uh, Facebook, but I never pay attention to it. I think what I like about the whole Instagram thing, it, it really seems like a sharing platform, and I rarely get people who just want to kind of be rude about what you're doing most people are very complimentary or they at least leave you a little like and it's all about sharing who you are and looking at others doing the same thing and i feel it's it's like a little group hug you know right. <laughs> I, that's my take from it i maybe not everybody feels that way but i've had very positive reaction with instagram uh, and i kind of got on on accident i had a student that told me to get on Instagram so I could see what they were posting on a regular basis. And I didn't post for a while. And then I thought, well, why not? Why am I not doing this? It sounds like fun. It seems like fun. And, yeah. and it has been, it's been, been really cool. But uh, I guess I'm so um, absorbed in, you know, it's funny that I've been teaching guitar for 40 years. And when it started out, I was, I was kind of encouraged by my dad to do it. He said, you could set up a studio in the basement. And I said, okay, but I don't really want to do this too long. You know, I'm only going to do Wednesday night and Sunday afternoon. And before I knew it, I had 10 or 15 students. And it was it was cool. It was pocket money. You know, I was young and I didn't really need to pay bills, uh, but I'm still doing it. And this thing that I thought was only going to be sort of a little muse for a while, and I'm still doing it. And, you know, it, it really, you make these connections. And I, I often say that I think I'm a severely underpaid therapist, which is fine by me, because I, my people... I think they really feel that I, I care so much about them, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'll have people that just need to talk for a while before we play. And if that's what this format means to them, then I'm honored to be there, to be that person, you know, to be, I guess, a mentor from time to time. I guess, that's, did I just say that? Right. <laughs> uh, but um, so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm more involved in this. And every year I force myself into a responsibility of making a Christmas album and I think I've done maybe 15 or 16 of those and it's like because I need to be creative mm -hmm. and I don't really have the time accessibility to do that because I'm always prepping for lessons I want to write music but if I can't do that as much and I really do consider myself a composer and they're in all the instruments you know the more instruments I had I, I felt like the more I could use those in my compositions and recordings which I do in my Christmas albums uh, yeah. Which, by the way, they're never vocal. Right. <laughs> so, um, which I, I could do that, but I don't. I, I, I think that would be a turnoff if somebody made a Christmas album and it was vocal, unless they were really a, truly a vocalist. Which mm -hmm. I, yeah, I can do that. You know, I used to sing professionally, but um, I like to take these opportunities when I'm making a Christmas album to add some of the cultural instruments that I have. Like I, I have this oud that I really love, and um, the oud is one of the earliest ancestors of the guitar, a fretless mid, Middle Eastern instrument. Um, 
And I, I like incorporating that, that sound. And if you can make it sound authentic and still do a Christmas melody, that maybe is a little hidden that the listener has to try to find that melody in there. That, that to me is where I, where my creativity probably sits for now, you know? So I'm not, I, I don't perform live as much. I, I did tour around the country back in the old days with a band and um, that was going places at one point, but it musically wasn't where I wanted to be. So I don't really crave that as much. I, I, I think I would love to do more live performance, but it's sort of not really in, in my schedule right now, you know? Right. But yeah, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the Christmas albums. That's definitely a tradition that uh, I, I think I've only heard two of them, but you know, that's... Oh, that's, I've got to get you more. Okay. <laughs> Right. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a shame that this video is not uh, going to be shared as is on YouTube because uh, the uh, the sun went down. It was actually all the way up when we started, and the sun went down. So I think I'm going to do like a time lapse uh, of super fast speed of the whole interview just to kind of show the way and learn more about music as you explore different instruments. So honestly, I've almost never done the high end. I mean, very yeah. rarely do I ever buy that. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you know, this is this has been great. It's a long overdue conversation, but thank you. Thanks so much for just sharing your insight today. Well, thank you for taking interest in my uh, strange uh, compulsion to buy instruments. And thank you for having me on. And that just about wraps up episode number 32. I would ask you, the listener, if you have found an incredible deal on an instrument or you found it at a really interesting place, I'd love for you to tell me about it. Where's What's the most interesting place that you've found a musical instrument where you weren't expecting it? Or what's the best deal that you found on a new instrument? Naturally, you can send me a message on Instagram or Facebook, or you can go to my website. You can find the specific page for this website at davidlanemusic.com toolkit and reach out with the contact form. But if you have a story, I would love it if you would share it with your own voice by leaving me a voice message at speakpipe.com toolkit. If you have a studio of any kind and you would love to have an easier time with admin, such as keeping up with your schedule and also getting payments from your clients, from your students, this is of course for you music teachers, but also for yoga teachers, those who teach martial arts and physical therapists, other kinds, it is really worth your while to check out Fonz, and you can do that with the link in my show notes. It is a free trial, no strings attached. Go ahead and check it out and see how it might free up some time and free up some stress with your business. Just a few reminders. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you would do uh, one or all of a few things. One, of course, probably the most important is please share this episode with at least one friend. Send it uh, as an email, as a text, or post it on social media. If you're streaming this on YouTube, please give it a thumbs up. And if you're listening to this podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, I would be so honored if you would leave a five-star rating and review. And that's going to do it for this week. I'm going to be back with you again next week with episode number 33. Until then, thank you so much for listening.